0: This is Quantization. Hi, we are Arezou Talibzadeh
1: and Kava Ashurinia and this is our podcast on inclusion.
0: Quantization is an independent project with support of Inclusive Design Research Center at OCAD University.
1: In this episode, we have a conversation between Jess Mitchell and Richard Fong.
0: We asked them to join us on June 23rd to talk about gender.
1: This is Season 1, called Signal, Episode 2, Gender.
0: is very interesting because i don't know why gender is important for me and why you say the kid is like your boy or girl i mean i would not say that i would not say anyone that my kid is boy or girl kid has to figure out what it
2: is i think gender and the regulation of gender has been important for the question of ruling because of the question of reproduction and that's always been the case around different nationalisms for example and who controls reproduction, and because reprodu- reproduction is about reproducing the nation often. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's one of the ways that the gender has been important. But um, again, the notion of gender and the notion of two genders is very specific to our, our and I'm saying our as a Westerner because there's a way in which I'm a Westerner.
1: That's Richard Fong. Richard Fong is a video artist, filmmaker and writer, and a professor in the Faculty of Art at OCAD University.
3: Certainly some of the gender conversation has been about reproduction and sort of even states regulating these sorts of things. But it occurs to me that maybe, I I don't know, but maybe there's a laziness also in gender um, that we have a tendency to... Uh, sort things. You know, this is like the Daniel Kahneman fast and slow brain. We sort things, and the binary is a very easy sort. You either are or you aren't. You're this or you're that.
0: And Jess Mitchell. Jess is senior manager at the Inclusive Design Research Center. She manages large-scale projects and initiatives focusing on fostering innovation within diverse communities while achieving outcomes that benefits everyone.
3: I don't know. It's a strange place for me because it's um, it's a place I haven't done a lot of blurring professionally, and I think you've probably done a lot of blurring professionally with gender, your own story, and your professional work. I work in inclusion, um, and I'm a I'm a lesbian, but I'm not I'm not working in a specific area related to my gender. I don't think.
2: (laughs) I think gender, for me, has come up around dealing with the question of sexual politics generally. Yeah.
3: Um,
2: And, yeah, I mean, in terms of lesbian and gay issues, gender has been important in different kinds of ways. Yeah. Um,
3: Like, which kinds of ways?
2: Well, I mean, this is one of the insights that I've had from teaching a course called Making Gender LGBT Studio uh, at OCAD that was started by um Wendy Coburn, but I have inherited it. And I actually taught it when Wendy was um on sabbatical, Wendy who passed away last year, a year ago now. And I'll jump forward. Okay, so I my foundation, you know, I came out in the early seventies, mid seventies, um, and into right into the lesbian and gay movement at that time, which was what what we used, the term we we didn't it didn't have the long the T's and the, the B even was not even there, the lesbian and gay movement in the 70s. And then, you know, have been with those questions as they developed, right? And this year in my class, uh, about 40% of the students uh, identified their main issue in the context of LGBT Studio as non binary trans. Right? Oh, wow. Um, and bisexual. So that's a huge shift from lesbian and gay movement and lesbian and gay... Which was either binary. Right. Lesbian and gay liberation, right? Because liberation was connected to sexual liberation, which was also connected to the liberation struggles of the period, women's liberation, Mm -hmm. but also the national liberation fronts of Vietnam to Southern Africa to, you know, places like Nicaragua and El Salvador, etc. Right? So one of the things that struck me uh, in this is that Many of the people from my generation initially had problems with the assertion of trans identities when yes. they first came to the fore.
3: Oh, not just then. I mean... Yeah, not- and, and
2: consistently. And yes. I think people, even of my generation, are now... I My sense is that they're becoming more accepting as there are more and more trans people that they're working. But one of the things that struck me was that, okay, many of the people in my in my generation who are activists, who are also not just dealing with, um, you know, human rights kind of issues, but also thinking in, uh, intellectually about it. Read Foucault, for example, and we're thinking of the construction of sexual identity We talked about social construction as opposed to essentialism, the idea that we're born with it, even though that's the argument that tends to win out in the human rights debate. You have to give us rights because we have no choice. Um, at the same time i think there was a misrecognition that what was being liberated was a, a transhistorical um I- essential identity that we were liberating and that's in to be honest that's the way that i experienced it myself having grown up in the caribbean in a in a place in which um you know sexual uh, identities were known but there was no, um, the only place to understand them was as kind of lesser than uh, a place of fear or identities associated with fear or um, uh, lesser than anyway, right? Uh, and so there was a sense in which we misrecognized that we were in fact liberating this thing, right, that was pre-existing, that was true. And I think one of the things that I now see having looked and having worked with people in their late teens and how their identities are so different, what they're trying to liberate, is that, in fact, these questions change and have been changing. You know, I think part of why um, the question of gender, it's in, in fact, was suppressed in the early movement, and I have to say suppressed because now I'm realizing how the ways in which some stories of identity were able to be mobilized, And some were were just like not considered quite the right story to be told. And it had to do with the fact that for those of us who, for example, as a gay man, the way that my identity was seen going back, let's say to the sixties, you know, when I was growing up, is that really what was happening that I was not truly a man, but I was in fact a woman in a man's body. So there was a way in which same-sex desire had to be legitimized. At, and it was done so, I think, at the expense of thinking about trans because in the early theorization of um, of sexuality and identity from the 19th century on, you know, it we went through those different movements of like the earning and the, you know, the woman trapped in a the male body. There are all these different ways of people trying to understand what these, non-normative or non-majority sexualities were until it came, I think, to the point of, like, you know, Magnus Hirschfeld in the early 19th century and the first homosexual liberation movement, um, you know, that was quashed by the Nazis, and then what we mark as Stonewall. So I think there is a a sense in which there was a misrecognition of what that was, and... uh, now, I think
3: I'm... a misrecognition of it because it was. Well,
2: it was of all the variety. It's like if you've got all these fruits available, right? You got strawberries. You got apples. I, I don't know. I'm pulling this metaphor just off the top of my head. Okay. So it may not work. Okay. But then the only fruit that you recognize are like the oranges and the citrus. Right.
3: This was the heteronormative. You had to fit into one or the other. As right. you said, you were a, you were a woman trapped in a man's body. You you couldn't be recognized as a man who had an attraction and so to other men. And so there was a way in which I think
2: now looking back that. Um, the possibility of trans was not recognized
3: uh, and, and was in fact, so trans was I think, though recognized, but outside of that realm, it's as though that was understand you said less than it was less than It was definitely recognized. Mm-hmm. much, much less than was trans. It was it was, I think, still recognized, but not even considered on the same level. And you see this still in the in the lesbian and gay community. Uh, Less so now, but, you know, in the in the 90s, especially a lot of hostility toward toward trans folks um, from gays and from lesbians. Famous exclusions from things like the Michigan Women's Festival and questions of, um, you know, a cis man or a cis woman and and what makes a man, and what makes a woman and these sort of gray areas. But I think that uh, you're not saying the story of sort of gay liberation is a hidden trans story, are you? No, what
2: I'm saying is that gay liberation actually hid the trans story. Yeah, I see. I think we're in agreement. Yeah. Because I think that what happened with trans stories, I mean, there were, you know, very famous transsexuals from the 60s, et cetera. But we're seen as outside. Right. And was troubling that was troubling to the story of same sex desire. Right. So it was not recognized and I think those stories were suppressed. And one of the things that struck me when I think back now to, for instance, um lesbians I knew, I remember wow, it would be in the nineties, where someone whom I knew as a lesbian said at a an event, I don't really think I really am a lesbian. And that's one of the first people, and one of the earliest trans people that I actually knew Wow, well, and when that story then was told, I think that could be troubling to the lesbian narrative, which is also. I think
3: why originally they were they were very intentionally avoided. Exactly. Uh, any kind of commonality. These were different enough. And the story of the of understanding what it meant to be trans was troubling enough to even establishing what it was to be gay or lesbian. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think that there's a way in which perhaps non-binary
2: trans can be troubling for people who are invested in a transition trans. from one from one gender yeah. to another. And one of the things that I said to my students, I actually kind of like said this to them about how you know, things are shifting, I said that the thing you have to be prepared for is that in 20 or 30 years, you one. will also perhaps be in a conservative position yeah. and there'll be new identities. And I think that was the insight that yeah. I had, is that these things are not, th- that we can't think of them, you know, like, that's what I mean, that there was a sense of a lesbian and gay liberation. You were liberating right. this. But in fact, what you're liberating, hopefully, is the ability to understand that there are shifts Right and shifts. Well, even move. in gay
3: and lesbian liberation, yeah. so-called yeah. liberation, there are these shifts as well. You have, um, I, I don't know, there's a continuum within gay and within lesbian, and with um, how you sort of present and how you identify and how you describe yourself. We have great vocabulary for these things, and the same is true in the trans community. Um, those who are part of what you're calling the trans liberation or the trans story, it's it's always been sort of curious and fascinating to me, there are some who um, who self-identify as being trans, transition uh, physically, and then continue to self-identify as being trans. Mm-hmm. And some do not. Yes. So there's already, I mean, there's such diversity and variation within any of these so-called categories. I can imagine that where your students are can be seen as a sort of natural progression toward why does it matter? and And as we heard earlier, why does it even matter? Why does gender even matter? Why do we talk about this? why is why is it important that somebody is let into a bathroom and somebody is not? Why is this in the national news?
2: Well, because I mean, I think it's because society has been organized. Our society in the West certainly has been organized around the notion of two genders, and that has also, through basically through colonialism, uh, both here, right, which is what Two Spirit is about, yeah. also assertion of yeah. um, pre-colonial identities around gender and sexuality, and then um, and then have been legally also spread around the world. So I come from Trinidad where the sodomy laws are actually the sodomy laws who were the same ones uh, that were developed in the end of the 1800s in Britain and then through colonialism. Uh, that's a sodomy law, really, that they're fighting over in India, right?
3: Is it and, the same as the one in Texas?
2: No, because they would have perhaps a different history, and I'm actually not sure about the Texan one, but it was certainly the one that was also here in Canada.
0: Yeah, Um. Yeah.
2: Right And then there are also interesting things around gender in terms of the sodomy laws in that Queen Victoria, apparently it was said she couldn't understand same sex sexuality among women, which is why lesbian sex is not outlawed in those <laughs> colonial laws. She
3: couldn't write the law right.
2: she couldn't she she just couldn't get her her head around that.
3: The famous what would they do? Yes <laughs> so.
2: And then again, I mean, that's part of this gender thing that women are not seen to have a sexuality. And the whole question of women's sexuality has been sort of debated within, also not just within the West, but elsewhere.
3: All of this is the case. And then I'm still sort of amazed, and, and maybe this is the inherent apologist in me, I'm sort of amazed by the commonalities in all of the stories. Like I was saying... You know, you, you you listen to a performer like, um, like Elvira Kurt talk about her coming out story. You listen to anybody talk about their coming out story. And um, if they're in Trinidad, if they're in rural America, which, which is where I was, it, wherever they are, there are still these points of commonality where you can tell a story um, about your coming out in a different generation than mine, and we'll have points of commonality. You know, And it occurs to me that's kind of amazing that we still have these threads. Do you find that with your students as well?
2: Yes, but I think the one thing to qualify that would be that, you know, my coming out of Trinidad, you're coming out in the United States, or someone coming out here, no matter where their family is from, they're coming out into a specific context with specific notions, yeah. right? I think um, there are other societies where the question of um, coming out is a is, is a different question, or it's, it's phrased different. It has different kind of touchstones. So, sure. for example, for me in the Caribbean, um, which even though I have to say Trinidad specifically, um, you know, the largest it has a very large the largest the largest ethnic group is from India, right? Mm-hmm and hindu um although the country itself uh being post colonial post independent is christian so it has this kind of um the notion of sex outside of marriage as being a sin mm-hmm. which is i guess uh, also the case in all of those the judeo christian so islamic Uh, Jewish and uh, Christian traditions. There are other societies where it's not a sin. So um, in Buddhist societies, for instance, in Southeast Asia, it's not a sin, but it's still also not not necessarily given equal status. So I was trying to get my head around this traveling in Southeast Asia, because you often see a lot of trans people on the streets. In India, where I've spent quite a bit of time, you see Hijra who are also considered a third gender. But they're always, even though they're not in a sin framework, right, which gives a particular kind of weight within the Judeo-Christian Islamic traditions, sure. they're still always lesser than, at least in the societies that I've I've had experience with. But they're often lesser than in relation to say like family networks or the fact that they can't or they're not seen to have children that kind of thing. So, I imagine coming out within that context would be different too. Of course. It wouldn't have the the weight of sin, but it would have a different kind of thing or Do you, you know. think
3: it would have some commonalities still with coming out? I mean, because it might. part it's of still. coming out that's not so cultural. Well, everything's cultural, everything's context dependent, but um, part of it is self-actualization and um you know, a, a sort of understanding of your own identity and a and a kind of nurturing of your own identity as it's growing and changing and understanding all of that. That maybe that's the universal piece. Well, there's also something else I think in that.
2: Um, I was thinking about that because there is a film that I've just seen. It's called Outrun and it's about Lad Lad, which is the first LGBT political party in the world, which was in the Philippines. Mm. And one of the things that appears that in the in the Filipino context, um, you know, there are all these it starts with images of all these religious parades that are all also drag parades, drag women, men in drag Mm -hmm. that um, I think that the kind of spectrum from uh, uh, drag queen to trans woman. Right. Um, So they're. They're there, they're part of society, they actually take a role, but they're also seen as figures of comedy or whatever. But it seems that people, from the time they're quite young, can in fact occupy the space they can be known. So it may not be that they have to come out in the same way, like Mm -hmm. it'll share a secret, which I think coming out implies but it also means that they are still always occupying a uh, position somehow outside of normativity, outside of, yeah, outside of yeah. regular citizen.
3: Your description of it makes me think of Mardi Gras in, mm-hmm. in New Orleans and makes me think of um, decadence, Southern decadence, You know, New Orleans is this wonderful city that has all of these, these holidays. It's almost one right after another where you're encouraged to dress up in drag uh, essentially, but Trinidad Carnival is the same. Yeah, exactly. So um, it's it's a funny. It, 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 maybe maybe that's the commonality, the point of commonality, where there are these safe places and safe times when it's okay to do these things, um, and it does change the sort of secretive nature of it. But you know, I think in. I mean, it's different in different contexts.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the difference there too is that. In the carnival, well, there's a particular point in the Trinidad Carnival called Juve, which is the beginning, and it you would dance from midnight until dawn the next day. Mm-hmm. And that's when a lot of the cross-dressing happens. And it's certainly a time in which people who are queer, to just use a kind of queer in the sense of generalized, non-normative, yeah. <laughs> heteronormative people, can kind of become their own person but a lot of the people who cross dress um, occupy the space of normative men or women, and then they expect it to go back to that when they're not in. When carnival. it's done right, yes. that's
3: right. Next weekend. Right. Yes. Back into your pants. <laughs> exactly.
2: So there's that kind of thing too. But it also uh, it gives an alibi for people yes. who want to express themselves that way in public. Yeah. A chance to do that. Yeah. That's what's great about carnival societies and I mean I have to say that that's been said to be one of the reasons why Trinidad and Tobago is less um has less expressions of a violent homophobia than say mm-hmm. a country like Jamaica mm-hmm. which does not have the same kind of traditions and also has had to negotiate has has less had a the the necessity to negotiate difference. Because and is that because it's less. It's, it's also less multicultural. It's right?
3: less multicultural, but it's also less mm. present. Yes. Right. So, you're right. And less fluid. Less in, visible. Yeah, less
2: fluid and visibly. Yeah, I
3: think yeah. that's a difference. Invisibility is big. Mm. That's another one of these themes visibility, invisibility. so inclusion um, that's one thing that we can sort of think about for a moment Um, one of the ways we talk about inclusion at the inclusive design research center um, is when we're thinking about developing something whether it's a product or a service or a website or or just some video or audio um, we want to think of inclusively designing it meaning considering the range of human uniqueness. And so in that, of course gender is a part of that. So I wonder what it, what it looks like to have this awareness like what your students have. Maybe that's what they're doing in the studio. You can talk about the making of gender there. But um, what does it look like to have that perspective and to produce something, a video, a piece of art, a product, something in the built environment?
2: And inclusiveness around questions of gender,
3: well, of gender, yeah, I mean it, but also this broader inclusiveness, I think at the inclusive design research center, it's beyond gender, but it includes gender as well, and so uh, one way we might think about that is have we have we made um some some binary assumption in this in this questionnaire right have we um have we given people the flexibility that they need to represent themselves? um in this product have we have we made it pink and blue right <laughs> those sorts of uh, you know i'm oversimplifying but those sorts of levels of awareness and then what would it look like to um to take a different approach where you're thinking right of of the much more fluid the continuum the much more complex and being inclusive of that Well, I mean, those are the
2: kinds of projects that students come up with and maybe gender responding to kind of uh, enforced binaries, etc. I think where the challenge comes up is to raise those questions and critiques where the students are not explicitly dealing with questions of gender, where one can subversively ask those questions. But people are often... One of the things that strikes me is people are so invested in gender in relation to their own identity whether it's an attachment to masculinity and femininity um, and an attachment to maleness and femaleness, which is different from masculinity and femininity or a dis, a, a lack of attachment, right. those things are so kind of close to how we think of ourselves, which is what Foucault was talking about right. too, right? Like right. It, it's so much about us and um, oh. One of the things that I was thinking just recently is, okay, so at one point, I was a sissy boy, and I used to dress up in my mother's or anybody's dresses, right? And um, someone took a photograph of me when I must have been about six, I think, or seven, with a big white skirt that was in a circle. <laughs> I think I was wearing my sister's dress. It was. A big... And I think at one point in my teens, I found that photograph and tore it up. Yeah. Because I didn't want the evidence. Because it was also seen, even though it was joking, and a kind of a... I suppose now I think about it, a kind of... um, uh, an embrace of a joke, right? But Uh, it was an
3: innocent moment. Yes. But you saw it as a foretelling of something. Well,
2: yeah. Or a a, a kind of evidence of the secret. Or it was also pointed with my... You know, my my family would giggle, or right? Um, so it was sort of a butt of a joke. So I tore that up, and now I wish I, I had wish you that. I wish had it. I, I bet had you do. That because there's a point at which I've come after like all these decades of dealing with sexual politics to a point at which I have loosened my attachment yeah. to a claim to be.
3: It's funny you say this because I have a very similar photograph. <laughs> um, my mother found it uh just a couple of years ago and it's it's my favorite shirt. It was a it was a very it was a boy shirt. It was right. a Snoopy baseball shirt. I think it had been passed down from my sisters and my mother was very wonderfully sort of fluid about gender. And I think it was born of her hatred of pink and purple and having three girls <laughs> and sort of trying to marry these two things. Um but I look at that picture now and people look at that picture and they say, well, you know, <laughs> it's pretty obvious at age six there. <laughs> I'm
2: actually looking at, uh, I have to write a little catalog essay for my friend Adel Gosine who has Pictures of himself also around that age. Yeah. And he's posing like a model. <laughs> you can, yeah, of course you could see it.
3: Well, and you see all these videos on YouTube now, like that kid who redid um, Madonna's Vogue video yes. in the in the video booth and was voguing and doing such a great job in his little knee socks. I mean, he's just yeah, he's adorable. And not not to say that we know what that what that child's gender will be, but that brings up this other point, right? You said. You were a sissy boy, and you were talking about your students um, and talking about sort of the way they're self-identifying now. The other thing to to realize and and think about and maybe talk about for a moment is that these things change throughout our lives. Like this is fluid as well. What I am today, I grant myself the ability to change at any moment.
2: Yeah. So I think yeah, people people change, people change, people change their people change their genders, and I think. People who become very invested in one gender can also change. There's a, a wonderful Danish film. I mean, it's very provocative. It's called the, the Regretters. And it's actually two trans women in... Wow, they transitioned in the 60s. And I did see it a few years ago. But they decided they didn't want to be trans anymore. And so one re-transitioned back into maleness. And the other one... Uh, decided that they didn't want to be uh, gendered, really, and so kind of just kind of transcended, in a way, Interesting. Uh, gender. And the, the film is staged as a conversation where they meet for the first time, and so they share their stories. And one of them w- w- transitioned to a woman, I mean, in the 60s, and then had a life in Britain as a woman, and then got married and her husband kept wondering why she wasn't getting pregnant and then discovered that she was trans and beat her up yeah. and
3: left right this is an interesting moment too and i think that this is often depicted in film especially is that moment of um not passing mm-hmm. and it's often associated with violence mm-hmm. and i, I I was just having this conversation yesterday with a friend. I went to a conference in Poland, and i I've traveled extensively in in Europe, but elsewhere as well. I uh, hadn't been to Poland and didn't know um, sort of how how it would feel to be in Poland and to be a fairly masculine presenting woman. Um, and I pass in Poland <laughs> more often than not, uh, which is great and troubling because it's at that moment where you're not passing in the moment you've just described, where so much of film, so much of the stories are about that's the moment where violence comes. Sometimes it's not violence, though, too, and it's an interesting moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's been interesting for me over the years to sort of um, change my own response to that moment. It used to be make somebody feel much better about the moment and take the responsibility off of them oh that's okay you know no problem you know almost as if to say it was my fault that you thought I was something I wasn't um and and then it's an interesting climate in Toronto as well because there is much more fluidity there is passing and there is um, sometimes even within um, within our community or within my community I don't know what to say more properly but um, there is a kind of respectfulness because I, I have so many friends who are transitioning that um, some people are using ambiguous pronouns to uh, show us sort of respect and an ambiguity and not knowing what that person's story is and respecting that as well.
2: Well, I really like the, the pronoun, Yeah, actually. Um, I like it in principle. Does it does it
3: trouble you grammatically?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean because there's no like plural single (laughs) that thing when you how do you say more than one person who are non-binary, so there is that, and I do get tripped up, and sometimes in the class it's hard to remember because I ask the students at the beginning of class what is your preferred pronoun, Uh, and sometimes and the what is more interesting is that most of the students forget the other students' pronouns. Is that right? So I have to, because I remember, because I write it down and I can see their names, right? But they forget who is what because often it's not obvious.
3: And then do they default to they? No, they... they
2: don't default to they. No. They default to what they think it ah, is. Okay. And I find myself having to to step in and say, well, they.
3: <laughs> Interesting. Right?
2: Um, because it defaults to whatever the person kind of looks like yeah. to them. Yeah. Um, it would be great if we could all be they. Like, yeah. why did, why, you know, like the way I, I think, you know, there used to be Mrs. and Miss, and we'd be oh, now all say Miss, right? Like, we all write Miss, and there's a, you know,
3: it would make it easier for writing as well. Yeah. This he slash she, or yeah, it could be MX, right? Or, I
2: mean, there is, I think MX it was the one that was suggested.
3: Oh, MX um, is nice, yeah.
2: Um, I think somebody proposed that a while ago. I was reading about the proposed. Um, yeah. Non gendered. Yeah.
3: But it's an interesting moment because in Toronto, I can't tell if I'm passing or somebody's being respectful because they're not sure. And it's this wonderful, we're sharing the moment.
2: <laughs> but often I can't tell whether somebody is, if like, for example, already butch lesbian, like, is that person being a they or are they a she? Are they, like, exactly. identified as exactly. a woman-loving woman? Exactly. Or are they somebody who wants... And that that can be a kind of awkward moment in which you don't know which, which you know, automatically. And right. sometimes, like, some people want to be asked what their preferred pronoun is, but sometimes it can also be kind of weirdly insulting if you don't think that right. you are um ambi- like your presentation is ambiguous and then somebody asks but you, you know
3: what that we're even having this conversation about people pausing and wondering yeah. which pronoun to use and maybe asking about it we wouldn't have been having this conversation just a few years ago no exactly it's amazing
2: so i think that that, that i see as a kind of uh really positive sort of development yeah because i you know like even around the the gay thing there was and that's where I'm really interested to see that bisexuality is being spoken again mm. because there was an investment. Are you one of us or are you one of them mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and people who are fluid in their sexuality, people who, you know you know, we may use the word queer in that context to describe people who may move back and forth. One of the things that was striking was the stories of my students who were saying things around, their parents and their own bisexuality, saying you know, like, okay, so you're um, you're female and you're going out with a male person now. Does that mean you're no longer bisexual? Right. And being somewhat offended by that because somehow it undermined right. their claims to bisexuality. And I was struck by a couple of things. One one of them being that the students were having these conversations with their parents kind and of kind of civilized conversations. And that wouldn't have happened generations ago, except no. in rather exceptional families. Right. And so I think one of the things that's striking to me is just getting back to the political sexuality is how the same sex marriage debates created spaces for these conversations to happen.
3: Exactly. I mean, it's all of these things coming together, isn't it? And I mean, just even on that topic, um, There's some great articles written about um, uh, the sort of the the discomfort of sorting out identity when you're a lesbian and your partner transitions and you still identify as lesbian.
2: I have lots of friends in that situation. Exactly.
3: And I mean, maybe this is where all these extra letters came in and created the space for you to be, you know, in that situation for there to be. We're a queer family. Well, in fact, I was at an event where somebody said, oh, I used to be a lesbian, but my
2: partner transitions. So I'm not sure what to call myself now. <laughs> right? Yeah, there, it's their word. I mean, there, I guess it's a queer word. Right. A, the word queer maybe, but yeah. um, I was also at the, um, at the women's panel where Susan Gapka, who's a very well-known trans activist, said, you know, I'm not queer. And
3: right yes and i was at a a comedy performance last night where um one of the comedians was um very uh, you know was very much on the binary and talking about um things as binary it, it is still a continuum right mm-hmm. it isn't that everybody is representing all things on the continuum that people still find a place that fits them and mm-hmm. Fits them at that moment. At that that moment, I
2: think that's what is interesting. At that
3: moment and in that context, like when I'm in Poland, I I feel very different than when I'm in Toronto. Um, I don't know the culture. I don't know is it okay to, you know, present in this way that I'm very comfortable presenting when I'm in my own home.
2: Years ago, I saw a film where this woman said, uh, "It's in Israel. It's a documentary," and she said. All these people would come and ask me, oh, oh, "Why are all the Israeli women lesbian?" And I'm saying, "No, they're just kibbutzim. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't wear makeup, and like, <laughs> right? And, and again, the uh, you know the the markers right. of gender do and they don't cross. Right, these it's the Doc Martins yeah, and the Birkenstocks. <laughs> all of those kinds of things. What are the markers? How do you identify? That's right. And I remember being, because I've also spent a lot of time in Latin America, and there it's a lot of it is by eye. Yes. Like, does somebody look back at you if you stare at them uh. um, among gay men? But often the markers of queerness don't.
3: <laughs> yeah. I lived in West Africa for a year. And again, I mean, I think it, it takes a, a bit of time to figure out a culture, obviously. Mm-hmm had no idea how much being out there was going to work. And I was there in a professional capacity as a volunteer. Uh, it, it's an interesting moment to be out and to then be in a situation where you're not sure if you're out. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like the, I used to be a lesbian, what am I now?
2: <laughs> and also the question of out. Like, I mean, I have been, quote, unquote, out. I've done public stuff. I've been on TV and radio right. as a gay person yeah. but am I always out am I out when I go to the no. corner shop am I all out when I exactly. do a particular things? so this idea of being out and being in as being these permanent right. conditions They're that not. you have passed a, tre- a threshold as you say going to Poland even though you've come out like right. it, it's changing all the time and as your context but, yeah.
3: changes right you go to a different neighborhood even uh, I, I burned in my brain is what somebody said to me, an older gay man, when I first came out, he was probably one of the first five people I told. And he said to me, well, that's great. Welcome to a lifetime of coming out. And it hadn't occurred to me that this was actually going to be something that I kept doing. Right. Yeah.
2: One of the things you had mentioned before we started talking was Orlando. And i was kind of interested in what, what your take on was.
3: Well, I, I was mentioning the appropriation and the notion of um, appropriating a moment and cultural appropriation. You know, Orlando is really complicated. Um, I think that over half of the victims were visiting from Puerto Rico. It's an it's a it's a, a sort of a favorite um, vacation spot for Puerto Ricans and for gay Puerto Ricans to go and enjoy themselves in a place where they can sort of be more out more open though Puerto Rico has a great gay culture as well um, and some strange things happened as as happens when um, a horrible event like this um, happens I, I think people started to feel very deeply uh, affected by it um, and and some messages got sort of blurred in the process. That it was Latinx, for instance. That that these were by and large brown and Latino and Latina, and um, you know these these people weren't just our our brothers and sisters. They were our brothers and sisters, and they had they they were unique individuals with very complex stories and very complex histories, as as all of us are. And I think a little bit of that was lost. But the The appropriation of it, I always feel a little bit nervous about that. Um, I never quite know what is appropriation of of that, and what is a respectfulness for that. I think that a lot of people are reaching out and saying they needed support, they needed comfort, um, and certainly that's valid. Those are those are their feelings. But what does it mean to honor? The victims and to honor their uniqueness and their complexity. What does it mean to honor them from the perspective of being, um, you know, LGBTQ and being sort of targeted? You know, this guy famously on TV is sitting there in a in an interview where it was it was like the All Lives Matter argument all over again. They they were so focused on the the this is terrorism, they couldn't focus on the, this was this was targeted for this particular community. Mm-hmm. And they missed that story altogether. And so now it's this checklist of all of these things. Are you a terrorist? What's your religion? Right? Uh, what language do you speak? What gun were you using? Uh, who are you targeting? And it becomes very, very complicated, obviously. Um, well, what do you do with all of that? How do you make sense of it? And how do you make sense of Um, how it affects you or doesn't affect you. And it's certainly relevant because this is Pride Month. I mean, you know, we're going to all be, many of us participating in in events. I remembered when this happened um, a feeling I had years and years ago. I was in New Orleans when Ellen DeGeneres had her coming out episode And I went to Charlene's Bar, which is, it was one of the oldest lesbian bars in New Orleans. It's where Ellen DeGeneres used to hang out when she was in New Orleans. She grew up in Louisiana. And I remember standing there watching that episode. It was, you know, it must have been a Tuesday or a Wednesday, and it was primetime television, 8 o'clock or something. I'm standing in Charlene's Bar. And, you know, it's New Orleans, and it's warm, and so the windows are all open. And I thought, you know if somebody really wanted to take out a whole bunch of gays and lesbians right now, they would just drive by and pop a little a little homemade cocktail bomb into the window. And I thought, oh, that's that's a very fatalistic and dark thought. <laughs> I just attributed it to me being very, I don't know, fatalistic and dark in that moment. And, you know, it was sort of one of those things that flips in your head and then flips right out. And then this happens, and I'm thinking, wow. Yeah, that, yeah it could happen...
2: Anywhere. anywhere, Yeah, anywhere.
3: Um, Groups of people, right? And yet you need these safe... Like I was at buddies last night for a, a comedy event. Having these places and having these safe places and these places for community are so important.
2: Well, they, I mean, they're never
3: completely safe. That's the thing, right?
2: Um, yeah, thinking through New Orleans, I think that um, one of the things I try to think through is... Mistakes. What is at stake for various people in making particular kinds of claims when something like this happens? Yeah. What is it legitimized? What is it mobilized to legitimize? Um, and so I was struck that within LGBT contexts, the Latinx identity is often erased. But, I, you know, exactly. since the 1980s, I've been organizing. I started out organizing lesbian and gay Asians, right? So I've been thinking about intersectionality for a long yeah. time. yeah. And what does it mean, right? And the more we know about uh, the killer, the shooter, the more complex it becomes and the reason. But one of the things, I mean, that, that struck me was... Whatever the motive is, he apparently knew. Uh, there was at one point where we knew that he knew the bar, that he'd yes. gone there for many years. And yes. I was thinking, like, why did he choose Latin night? Right. Right. He chose it for a reason. And now there's, I don't know if you've been following the press, but, you know, apparently he had a Puerto Rican partner and he felt no, Oh, you know. haven't read this. No. This is the latest thing that he apparently He had a Puerto Rican boyfriend for a couple of months. And one of the things that the boyfriend said, and, of course, these are all things that you never completely know. So I'm t- just saying what is circulating now in the media. The boyfriend said that he was particularly attracted to Latino men but felt rejected by them. Oh. So the way that, you know, the terrorism narrative, right, right. Or, all of these narratives, the more we know, become destabilized. Exactly. And, <laughs> and I find that really interesting, Yeah, how we become invested in one of these things. But, yeah, for sure, I I think... The fact that 90% of the people who were killed were uh, Latinx, many of the remaining re, re, uh, the remaining uh, victims uh, who died were African American. Yeah, and it has to do with how Latinos are racialized in the United States, much more so than in Canada. Yeah, and it has to do with specific historical reasons um, in the United States. But uh, yeah, I mean that that I and I was seeing that both from some mainstream media, but also looking at the websites or the Facebook pages of uh, Latino colleagues of mine. Right, right. right? Who were really, yes, particularly, um, you know, people who are Puerto Rican.
3: Right. And <laughs> people want, they want a narrative so badly. It started out and it was, it was, this is a terrorist and this is this terrible thing. And, you know, it, it progressed. And then now he's got an account on some of the gay uh, dating websites. Right. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe our narrative about him being a terrorist isn't so strong after all. Or maybe
2: our our um our narrative about this being a heterosexual yes. who is homophobic yes, exactly. becomes more complicated and it becomes it becomes very complicated because of the idea of the self hating homosexual. Yes, exactly. Right? So but I think we have to like face up to whatever it is. Right. And that becomes uh the the challenge for us that that these things are sometimes not as easy as we might hope.
3: Most things aren't. I mean, no thing. I mean, this is the lesson, right? You want easy, you want binary, you
2: want clear. It's rarely. But one of the things that somebody said quite early on is that it part of the problem with narrating it as primarily just uh, a homophobic uh, murder or homophobic incident was that it then uh, projects the idea that LGBT is always already white. And I see that playing out in Toronto, for example, in the um, apology by the police chief for the bath raids of 1981 yesterday. Two things. One is that he expressed regret on behalf of the services, police, Toronto Police Services. He didn't actually apologize, it was expressed regret. It was for the 1981 bath raids, not the 2000, yeah, the 2001 bath raids against Pussy Palace in which you know there were male cops who went into women's only space. So he's apologizing only to gay men, actually, <laughs> not to the lesbians, right? And then it's happening at a time, I, I just wrote a letter to the paper saying, how long will we have to wait for an apology about carding, racial profiling, kettling, and the the killing of people with mental health disabilities as a first response, yeah. right? Um, and it's a time when there's a lot of focus and a lot of critique, Black Lives Matter about anti-black racism and you know, mental health, lack of mental health training. Uh, and, and it's not just training, I have to say it's not just training, it's systemic. And it also goes through the system where you see, you know, the the person, um, the one guy charged in the Kettling incident got like 30 days of vacation pay. Mm-hmm. That was that was his punishment. Right. Taken away. So it's a, it's a rotten system. And so when we're getting all of this, then there's an apology. I'm uh, uh, sorry, an expression of regret for an incident that happened 35 years ago with no one held re- accountable. Right like no one punished, no names even, right? So again, the assumption is the collapse of the LGBT, but it's actually only gay men and then because they're black gay men too, who like my partner was saying, we should do this kind of parody where you we issue black gay men with a... Um, a button that says "I'm gay" or oh, "I'm really gay," so that then maybe if they're wearing that while you know driving or whatever as black, then, then the police will say, "Oh no, we thought you were black, but really you're just gay," right? And so you, you know, so that's that's the that's a problem when you don't have an intersectional
3: right. approach, right?
2: I mean, it's great that all of these kind of human rights issues are being resolved, um, and I my sense is more so in canada that they seem i my hope is that they're permanent rather than in united states for example <laughs> where there's a lot of
3: pushback yeah um you're you're wounded from california still as many are well no i'm thinking more of like what's ha- actually happening say in yeah, north carolina, carolina yeah. and
2: right how those things move move forward and move back um and I was thinking I was just in Ireland where they actually won right. same-sex marriage through a referendum. Right. Unique, and uh, that, um, that it's been gained through a referendum rather than through legislation from the top. Right. Uh, which is really interesting because it's also about um, the strength of the Catholic Church. and
3: Exactly. Um,
2: and they're going through their own kind of quiet revolution. as. having worked around questions of inclusion and diversity, not so much in terms of inclusive design and mm-hmm. what that means, I think is that um, the the idea of inclusion is that the center remains the same and it just widens to include. And having worked on... Um, questions of racial and and cultural equity. One of the things that I always say is that not only do you have to include, but you also have to change. So the center itself has to change by that inclusion. It's not just an add on. Right. And um, yeah, I think that certainly has to change in terms of of gender issues. and gender even if you're thinking of the binary gender like not just include women for example but organizations have to change um in that inclusion and it has to change the terms and i think those things are changing when you think even of the idea of like paternity leave Mm -hmm. or like you know not the assumption that the women will also be the caregiver or those kinds of things are changing but then when you also consider questions of sexuality and it becomes parental uh, uh, Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then uh, uh, um, both questions of sexuality and the kind of um, non-binary moves that we're seeing around gender, yeah. yeah, we have to We have to change how we do things. It's exciting. The we, has to change. the we has to change. The we has to be a different we.
0: We would like to hear your thoughts on this, so don't hesitate to be in touch. You can find us at quantization.ca.
1: Next episode, we have Richard Hunt in conversation with David Lepofsky on AODA. AODA stands for Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act.
0: We want to thank all who support us on doing this podcast. You can check our advisory committee and friends on our website.
1: And a special thank to Marshall Bureau, who composed all scores for our podcast.